Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your regular look at what's going on in the world of research, especially around COVID-19 for the past year. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Helen MacDonald. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And we're welcoming back to the pod this week, Joe Ross. Hi, Joe. Hey, Duncan, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Um, The sun is shining here and we're coming out of uh, lockdown at least a little bit, so I think mine and everyone else's mood is uh, pretty buoyant, um, despite, you know, having messages from our public health colleagues saying, uh, you know, make sure you follow the data, not just the dates for uh, for easing things up. And How spread out going? on Brighton Beach. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're expecting an influx of people uh, this weekend, I'm sure, down here. Anyway, um, Joe, uh, things are changing in the States as well. How's it going over there? Well, we're running this like crazy parallel game of, you know, our vaccination rates are rising rapidly and states are all sort of getting to the point where all adults are going to be eligible for vaccines. My daughter, who's 18, was delighted to find out that she's eligible starting tomorrow in the state of Connecticut. But at the same time, rates are rapidly rising as well to the point where President Biden asked state governors to reimpose MAC mask mandates. And our CDC, their our director of the Center for Disease Control, warned actually on, you know, being interviewed of impending doom and, and actually was near tearing up at the, oh, wow. the the rising numbers because we just had, you know, it feels so close, but yet the sort of, you know, we're, we're essentially watching another wave build right in front of us. Mm. And uh, I've heard that there is part of that is to do with the uh, new variant that came over from the UK with increased infectiveness and things. And we'll probably get onto that in a, in a little bit in the show. Um, we also have this week some new evidence about kids and COVID. Um, are they those little vectors of viral contamination we were all worried about? We've got some treatment news and also a little bit on long COVID. Well, since you didn't ask me, Duncan, what I've been up to, I'll give you my <laughs> I'm news. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, actually, my my news, my world of COVID this week has been um, try, trying to uh, shepherd the BMJ publications through, which, um, which belong to this bigger project and collaboration with WHO, the World Health Organization, um, uh, with whom we're collaborating to... Um, publish these uh, guidelines, living guidelines on treatments for COVID-19, people who have it, and also treatments for prevention, people who don't have it. And today, this being Wednesday, the 31st of March, um, the WHO are releasing the latest update, um, which includes a recommendation um, for the use of ivermectin in people with active COVID infection. And the recommendation there is um, just to use that drug for the purposes of research rather than for clinical practice. And this is a drug which is typically used for for sort of um, helminth, worm infections, um, but there had been growing interest about its use in COVID. And I managed to catch um, a couple of minutes with Bram Washberg, who we've heard from before on this show, about um, why the panel made that recommendation.
thanks, Helen, for having me again. Uh, my name is Bram Roshberg. I'm an adult intensivist. Uh, I practice in Canada, in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, and I acted as a methods chair for this this guideline addressing ivermectin. Great. And and how are things in Canada at the moment? Unfortunately, reluctant to say that we're in the throes of our, our third wave, and I've spent much of the morning dealing with capacity in our ICUs. Our, our hospitals and intensive cares are more full with COVID patients right now than they ever have been previously with the first or second wave. So although vaccinations are ramping up, it's, it's not fast enough. And, and I think a lot of Canadians are very concerned about how the next month or two are going to play out. Oh, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for you uh, from here. Um, tell us about your other part of your work on on this guideline panel. You've been looking at um, a new drug, which isn't in the previous updates. Uh, it's ivermectin. Um, what, what was making um, the WHO and member states interested in the role of this drug in COVID treatment? Yeah, as you know, ivermectin traditionally has been used as an uh, antiparasitic agent um, and uh, widely used for this this indication. Although, uh, as with many of the other repurposed drugs in the setting of COVID, uh, a group of folks wondered whether it perhaps had antiviral or anti-inflammatory effects and uh, experimented with it in the setting of uh, patients both for treatment and prophylaxis in COVID. And so it had drummed up a lot of attention, especially, you know, listen, we're this late in the pandemic and we have such limited, some treatment options now, but still relatively limited treatment options. And a lot of those treatment options that we we do have, some of them at least are quite costly. So I think there was a lot of uh, attention. There is a lot of attention on ivermectin, appropriately so, is that in the hopes that there's something that, that will improve outcomes and something that's, that's reasonably priced and widely available that might improve outcomes. And there was some kind of promising looking research coming out on this drug, which I guess was also contributing to to anticipation of of whether this might be the one. Um, But it doesn't really seem like it is the one for now, at least. Um, Talk us through the recommendation that the panel made and why. Yeah, as you know, all all the recommendations are based on the the evidence summaries provided by the Living Network Meta-Analysis team um, and uh, also uh, done here for this drug similarly. And so the panel deliberated uh, for some time looking at those evidence summaries. And although there are some some studies and trials that have evaluated uh, this drug in COVID, the panel ultimately felt like there was still too much uncertainty uh, and issues with the evidence that was there around risk bias in the trials and, and imprecision and low number of events. And so uh, ended up with saying, because of this un- ongoing uncertainty, that uh, we should continue to investigate ivermectin uh, within the setting of clinical trials. But, but at least for the time being, given this uncertainty, it shouldn't be used in the, in the treatment of patients clinically. Mm. And do you think that's going to change? Do you anticipate that better quality uh, evidence or bigger studies are going to come so that eventually you'd be able to make a recommendation with, with more certainty around it? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think that's inherent in the recommendation for clinical trials is, is that they're, um, you know, given the uncertainty, although some preliminary and, and, and uh, early findings that there's there's a potential uh, with this drug is that uh, the hope would be is that further trials are done. And part of our uh, review is, is that we have a team that looks at all the registered trials investigating certain agents in COVID and 
They found, uh, based on their review, there's currently 66 randomized controlled trials registered examining ivermectin in patients with COVID and enrolling in the, in the upper ends of 12,000, 15,000 patients. So I, I think that is hopeful and, and hopeful that we will have more data addressing this drug. And the benefits of it being a living guideline is, is that the panel's at the ready that at moment's notice, if, if what's perceived to be practice changing evidence uh, is published, is that this could certainly be reevaluated. Well, the internet is probably going to go wild about the ivermectin thing, so we can uh, keep an eye on Twitter to uh, to see how that plays out. Um, the other thing that the internet went wild about was uh, kids going back to school, and there were so many questions asked about um, what that would do to our COVID rates in the UK and, and around the world. And Helen, you've been thinking about that. And looking well, Joe that. and I have both been thinking about it. And we've got two very, very special papers, both published in the BMJ. This is a bit of a BMJ party of content this week, actually. <laughs> Top marks to our colleagues <laughs> in recent times for, for getting through this stuff. So obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about children sorry, obviously there's been a lot of discussion about children and COVID and it's clear that the risk to children um, from COVID to themselves is very low. Um, But the risk they pose to transmission um, to people who they live with or to a wider society, particularly when schools are in and they are um, socialising with each other more closely is less clear. And there are some mechanistic reasons why you might expect uh, infection in children to differ, um, particularly because we know that the coronavirus is very tied up with the ACE uh, enzyme gene, which is different in children. There are differences in children's immunity and the children have a lot of respiratory infections, um, particularly coughs and colds, some of which are coronaviruses. And they're they're different adults in that respect. (laughs) Oh, I live with them. I live with them, three of them. (laughs) (laughs) And they're of the grubbiest age as well. Anyway, and um, I suppose from an evidence point of view, it's useful to think if the world had done everything right, what studies should we have done um, to know uh, what the role of children is is in infection um, or um, sort of how we could best have approached schools because it seems like schools maybe if we'd done cluster trials we could have seen what the impact of schools being open or closed was but in terms of just understanding the transmission I don't know if that would have given us the full full picture and this is sometimes a game we like to play at manuscript meeting isn't it Joe sort of what would the perfect study um, in children have been and with your with your big data observational um, obsession hat on do you have thoughts, you have thoughts? on the dream? Well, I think, you know, I, I think it, well, it depends on the question you want to answer, right? That's what makes this so fascinating because, um, you know, the, there's the question of does living with children increase your risk, which also just gets at the sort of broader issue of household size. And we know that the, the most uh, unfortunate ways and common ways to get infected with COVID is A, uh, by eating outdoor, eating indoors in restaurants, but or bars, but B is from somebody in your home, right? So the more people you live with, you're just increasing the number of vectors that are potentially going to get you. So and kids are a vector. But the second question, and that this is, I think, the question that parents want to know is, what's does sending your kids back to school increase risk, mm. right? And, you know, and so there's these two sort of, you know, differing questions. You know, obviously you'd want 
an RCT, you know, just keeping everybody at home versus letting them go about their day, you know, and going to school, you know, that that's really the way to answer it. But aside from that, um, all we can do is study what happens in the in the real world. Okay, well, I'll give us the first paper, which I'll summarise crudely as, is it bad to live with kids in COVID? <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is a kind of mega UK study um, done by Open Safely. So Ben, ben Goldacre's team in Oxford. Um, and it's asking if you live with children, um, how does your risk of infection with COVID or bad infection being having to be admitted to hospital need intensive care or dying compared to adults who don't live with kids um, and they do this in a couple of settings which is quite interesting um, which sort of took advantage of circumstances within the UK because the first lockdown that we had in March 2020 nursery schools were all out um, and the second lockdown that we had in November was a little bit different because nurseries and schools were still open so that allowed them to to answer this in a in a slightly richer way and they also asked did this vary with the kind of age kids that you have around so for example my children who are, I think are a little bit younger maybe a bit grubbier than yours Joe, who are a bit more mature probably have better levels of hygiene um, but maybe are more at risk of COVID um, how does it compare so what they found was that during wave one um when the schools were out and nurseries, there was little or minimal association um, with those outcomes in adults. Whereas during wave two, there was an increased risk of infection and admission for adults who lived with children, although those absolute numbers were still quite low. So to give you an example, and I'm not gonna give you all of the stats from the paper because it will be a bit overwhelming, but among under 65s in the second wave, for example, if you live with kids that were under 11, there was an increased risk of infection. So the hazard ratio for that was 0 0.06. And in absolute terms, that meant an increase of around 40 to 60 infections per 10,000 people. So an increase from a baseline of around um, 110 to between 150 and 170. So that gives you a kind of a kind of sense of, of how bad this is. And they kind of discussed their results in the context of another study which was done um, in Denmark during 2020, which also highlighted that the risks seem to be higher to adults who live with children immediately after the lockdown when their kids went back to school. Um, I think what's difficult to explain then is the kind of the causality of that, that, that sort of association. Is it something about... Um, parents or something about children or the behaviors that families have that that might explain that that increased increased risk it's always possible to find biases but what did you spot with your forensic eye joe about this one well you know to me what there's there's a couple of things that make this paper really interesting i mean and i do want to be uh, very cautious it's I, I don't think we can even attribute it to schools per se right because the behavior of the populations were very different in wave one versus wave two in wave one you know, people were rightly sort of, you know, scared out of their pants, right? People were really locked down. They stayed in their mm. home unless they really had to leave. That included, you know, when even if you had little kids, you know, keeping them in the house and not walking out the doors, you know, in big cities in particular. And, you know, I think many parents gained many a gray hair because of that, because they were, you know, not really walking outdoors and there was just so much fear. By wave two, after the summer, people had a better sense of kind of how this worked. We knew it was a respiratory virus. We knew we weren't getting it by touching packages or subway car seats and all that other stuff. And we had a sense of if you were outdoors and wearing a mask, you were generally okay. And so 
people went out and about and people were more likely to shop and take their kids to a playground. And so the... And the playgrounds were open because they were even shut in that first wave. So and with looser, so with looser you know, behavior, behavior, you're just more likely to have infections in the community. And so, you know, I think that's what we're observing here. So it's hard to take away much from the wave one data when everyone's basically homebound. But mm. by wave two, we're really learning, okay, you know, probably homes with kids are a little, kids are a little bit more likely to carry infections and they're a little bit more likely to bring them in. And, and that's, that's kind of the risk you live with. And it's just kind of a numbers game. You're just exposed to more people. So where does it leave us? Well, I guess we're going to keep the kids. <laughs> <laughs> we can't get rid of them, even if they were such high risk. Um, so what did what did the other paper show? Because you had a good look at that one. Yeah, I, the other paper actually does, a, I think, a really nifty job of trying to really estimate the, the risk of having your kids in school. So that what they did was essentially a cohort study of children attending schools in the in the canton of Zurich, Switzerland. They looked at kids in 55 schools. They recruited them uh, to join. You know, they talked to their parents, they talked to the teachers, and they did baseline testing. And then the schools were open at a time when rates were actually climbing in Switzerland, all rates as high as in the US and in the UK. And they just monitored it to see kind of what would happen. And this study actually reflects what kind of became the best evidence in the U.S. as well, which was essentially showing that, you know, the, the rates of infection in schools basically reflect the rates of infections in the communities. And if you're kind of cautious and careful, the kids are in schools are separated and distant and they're wearing masks that um, you don't get large clusters of infection. They, I think they observed one or two clusters. But of a you know of a you know kids definitely got sick over time, but this, this the rates reflected the rates in the community that were climbing over time, and there were not a number of clusters within the classroom that would have suggested that they were transmitting among each other. Instead, they were probably getting in the community and then being identified and then being removed from the classroom, and kind of all that was working out okay. Uh, so this, I think, was one of the first studies to really demonstrate the way that sort of taking precautionary measures uh, was not going to lead to increased rates within schools so long as you're, you know, to keep you're observing and, and monitoring kids for symptoms and so on. So what kind of measures did they have in place in their schools? I, I don't think they were doing anything exceptional. Um, you know, I think schools uh, staff were wearing masks, children were wearing masks uh, in the secondary schools. I think the younger kids weren't required. Um, they had distancing rules in the classrooms. Of course, they had requirements for kids to stay home when they were ill. And I think they tried to reduce large group activities. So they probably weren't having kids come up and sing in the chorus. But uh, they were still teaching kind of, you know, math and writing and English and social studies and all that other good stuff. There we go. Well, it's nice to have some kind of reassurance there. Isn't it? I mean, I'm sitting here without kids, so I'm fine. But uh, for you two, <laughs> that make you feel a little bit better. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's just been such a difficult question for, and it gets at the sort of who should be answering it. Should it be the upper levels of government making a decision for communities? Should communities be answering the question for themselves when there isn't good science to guide it, you know, how to act and behave? I know in the U.S., you know, there was no one was really getting at this question and an economist sort of took it upon herself initially via social media, just asking people like, tell me what's going on in your school and kind of aggregating 
a data set and uh, trying to, you know, and she would then kind of write about it in the New York Times. Her name was Emily Oster. But like, we just really didn't know. It was an evidence-free zone for a long time. Um, so this Switzerland study, I, I found quite reassuring. And, you know, as kids are back in school now in this, you know, unfortunate third wave, it does help us, you know, better manage because, you know, little kids really need uh, to be in a school environment. The older kids, my kids are teenagers, you know, they're fine, kind of do it going through Zoom, maybe meeting up then for outdoor sports practice and stuff like that. But uh, I think for the younger kids, uh, it's, 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 it's really difficult. Helen, you could probably speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I totally. I th- I think it's so <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> hard for the parents as well, eh, Helen? <laughs> it's incredibly hard. It's it's so destructive. I mean, you can't work easily as a parent. You can't leave your kind of um, primary school age child to kind of get get on with work on their own. Um, it's it's incredibly difficult, and I think even even more difficult for children who are only children or have small families um, whereby, mm. I mean, we're very hectic up here, but at least we're, there's quite a lot of us. So we have some variety in terms of who we have to look at each day. Yeah. <laughs> my, I will say my teenagers love it. You know, they roll out of bed at 8.30 and turn on their computer uh, and then they're in school. <laughs> they get to sleep in for as long as they can. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, that that's good. We'll put the links to those papers in the uh, in the podcast text, so everyone else can be reassured as well. And I'm looking forward to someone sending us in maybe a methods paper on quantifying and adjusting for levels of grubbiness in children. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's there's no direct measure just yet. The grubby <laughs> index. So I wanted us to do another little section this week, uh, which was kind of a bit of the best of the rest stuff on COVID, which we didn't go into in supreme detail, which nonetheless had a little nugget of interest in it. Um, And Dunk, you spotted this variance paper, um, which I think is worth a look, if only for the fact that it seems to be fascinating everybody. Yeah, it's uh, this is actually the canonical kind of uh, version of this paper, which was published as a preprint a while ago and got some attention then too. But really, it's talking about um, the variant variant of concern um, that arose in in Kent. Joe, you described this as a simple little study. Do you want to give us <laughs> thirty seconds on it? Well, maybe it only seems simple to me because I'm not a, a lab <laughs> researcher, so <laughs> I can only understand it at the simplest way. But essentially. You know, what they did here was they identified, you know, all the positive SARS-CoV-2 tests over a period from October 2020 to January 2021, when the new variant uh, was beginning to spread this sort of VOC, I don't even know how to, 2020-012-1, and, you know, the... The B117. Yeah, whatever they're calling it. The Kent variant or the UK variant, if you live outside the UK. (laughs) And and they look at the sort of detection of the S gene, which is, I think, the main way in terms of how how it varies. It looked at the associated mortality over 14 days of patients who are identified. That's my uh, sort of quick sort of summary of it and you know what they find is that the s gene um, negative uh, people infected with the s gene negative variants um, have lower uh, survival and you know that in itself is worrying because this is the the variant that is spreading more rapidly but then they do this nice kind of matched control study where they 
match patients based on age, whether they're hospitalized, you know, all, all sorts of stuff like that. And that's when they show that, you know, the sort of increased um, mortality risk really bear, bears out. Um, I think it's like a 1.5 or 6 hazards ratio or so. But, you know, this is early evidence, but, it, you know, it's concerning because, you know, right, right now, you know, we're sort of, it feels like we're on a race against the variants. The variants are spreading more rapidly. There's several of them. We're trying to get people vaccinated as quickly as we can because, you know, this, you know, this infection already has a lot of associated morbidity and mortality. We don't need it to be worse, um, but, but that is what's spreading. Well, that was useful. So this, my spot to contribute um, was, we've talked about this before on the show as well, this um, link between COVID and coagulation and thinking about how anticoagulants might be best used amongst people with COVID. Um, and actually, it was it was the editorial rather than the paper that most interested me here. The paper, in short, was a big uh, database study done within Veterans Affairs in the US and looked at the association between having a prophylactic anticoagulant and it, it was quite a wide range that they considered. So they looked at warfarin, intravenous heparin, low molecular weight heparins and direct oral anticoagulants and use within um, 24 hours of admission compared to not having it within 24 hours of, of admission and the association then with 30-day mortality in hospital death um, or use of a therapeutic dose of anticoagulants as a kind of proxy that they had gone on to have a thromboembolic event of some kind. Um, and they found out that people who had received a prophylactic dose uh, quickly, um, they had 27% um, decreased risk of death over the first uh, 30 days. And the hazard ratio estimate there was 0.73. Um, and the point that the editorialist picked up, which I thought was, was interesting or kind of resonated with me, was that UK readers might find this a bit puzzling because most people who get admitted to hospital um, have a thromboembolic risk assessment done and, and people coming in with acute infections uh, like COVID would typically routinely receive such a, uh, a drug anyway. Um, and so the interest, I think, uh, certainly here has been more um, amongst those groups um, should actually a higher dose of prophylactic um, drug be given, um, even going up as high as a therapeutic dose, um, treating as if they did have a clot. Also discussion of how long those uh, medications might continue after the person has got better or been discharged from hospital and also what to do back in the community amongst patients who aren't um, being admitted uh, back in primary care and what the editorial outlines is some really interesting trials some big trials which are going on which are soon hopefully to give us some definitive answers to these questions because I think it's fair to say that the veterans affairs thing probably doesn't answer that for us fully um so it's uh, dot, dot, dot was my, uh, what I wrote down in my notes. Yeah, TBC, no, yeah, uh, what, what we should do. <laughs> you know, this, with any observational study like this, this is the, the main point of concern. Like, do the people who are treated differently differ in other unmeasured ways that, allow, that, that don't allow you to sort of extrapolate the sort of benefits of the treatment, right? And so I think in the US, uh, I think anyone with kind of high or intermediate risk would get prophylactic treatment. I think the sort of, but lower risk patients, it depends on sort of how you think about age, someone who's sort of admitted to the wards kind of walking around, 
would they get prophylactic treatment or not? Uh, you know, they may just say, okay, you're walking, that's that's fine. And, you know, so, you know, in the early stages of being hospitalized for COVID, that this is kind of the question, right? You know, before you've started to look worse and uh, kind of become bed bound, you know, what does that early dose help? And I think this is, you know, just kind of a, a it rolls the ball a little bit farther down the field as we try to figure this out, you know, to use a sports metaphor, but we're, we're not quite at the answer. And I know that there are some RCTs actually trying to look at this, but hopefully everyone will get vaccinated and we won't see any more COVID, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would solve a big problem, but it wouldn't solve it all, which nicely brings us to the last spot, the last spot, which actually Duncan spotted, which was this um, review from the NIHR um, research organization in the UK um, on long COVID. And I think we could sum this up as this is all very uncertain. We don't really know who it affects, exactly what the effects are, how long they go on for, how we should manage uh, people and what they might expect over time. Um, But what I found quite useful about this summary was that NIHR have brought a lot of that evidence together um, into a nice document, uh, which I do think is quite useful and could even be shared, I think, with with patients and the public to to enhance people's um, own understanding. Uh, And what it linked to and outlined was a plan to spend quite substantially on research around this. So in the UK, the link from the document describes that there's 18.4 million that's been promised to these kind of four projects, which are going to start to try and pick away and resolve some of these uncertainties. And I guess, although that still sounds like a lot of money, I did, I did sort of wonder with the upkick in um, patients being referred into long COVID clinics now, how that balance of money between delivering a service when we don't really know exactly what we should be delivering versus doing the research to work out what we should be delivering. It'd be interesting to know how that balance is because it really does feel like there's a huge amount of uncertainty here. Yeah, and yeah, not, not, to, not to be outdone, but the US Congress uh, allocated <laughs> uh, $1.15 billion to the, to oh, the NIH no. to, to study this too. So and that's because there is not only so much uncertainty, but, you know, so much patient suffering, right? I mean, there are so yes. many people who've recovered from this infection or, I mean, who are no longer sick with the infection, but are still trying to recover from the symptoms that have persisted. Uh, it's just a, you know, it's just awful. Uh, for, yeah. and, you know, clinics are sprouting up to care for these patients with these very unusual, you know, persistent symptoms. And we're not really sure yet what to do and it's such a distressing situation i think well primarily for the people in that situation but also for clinicians when there is enormous uncertainty about how you can reassure that person that it might get better or try and arm them with information on what to expect or try and you know help them through that period of suffering with with something that might help yeah i think um well as they say in the report you know there is so much uncertainty about the number of people and, and those trajectories that you talked about. But what they do conclude, uh, one of the, the, the only concrete things in it, is that it is a huge, huge burden and it's going gonna, it's gonna to put a huge strain on, on the healthcare system in the, uh, in the upcoming years. Well, 
Well, that's a less cheery point to wrap um, Talk Evidence up this week. But uh, as always, we're going to be keeping an eye on these things for you. Um, So make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from uh, to keep in the know about long COVID and treatment and and everything else. Thanks to Helen and Joe uh, for joining us today. And last thing to say is goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thanks, Helen and Duncan, for having me on. Well, we'll we'll welcome you back soon, hopefully. Uh, Until then, take care out there.